in uh, our fifth sermon in the Jeremiah series. And uh, if you think about our display here, uh, we have been spending the first number of weeks on the left side, on the uh, rusty fender, the judgment side. And we've been seeing all the aspects of why God judged the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and what his intent was and why he was doing that. Now we're kind of in the middle of the story, the present living. And so in the course of the history, uh, Babylon has come, uh, taken the nation captive, hauled them off in chains to Babylon. And now the people are struggling to get settled in Babylon. And into the midst of that, God writes an amazing chapter, Jeremiah 31. And God has a special, incredible message for the people. And he knows that ultimately, if they're going to end up at restoration, when they're fully restored back to himself, put back in their land, the, the temple and the city are rebuilt and they're fully restored, that heart change needs to happen. And that's what Jeremiah chapter 31 is all about today. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it to Jeremiah 31 or start the Ocean View app on your smartphone. Uh, or follow along on the screen. There's a professor from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, he was invited to preach a sermon at a church in Nevada. And he was very normally very reserved and studious, uh, but when he went to this church, it just like God kind of fired him up, and he was just going for it this morning. And he was, he was preaching to this congregation in Nevada that, that they needed to repent, that they needed to get their hearts right with God. And at the end of his message, he said this. He said, you need to repent and turn from your sins. So Buster, if you are here right now and your heart is not right, come down to the front right now. And so then at the conclusion of his message, he went down to the front of the stage and the, the pastor joined him and they were waiting there to talk with anyone whose God has really touched their heart. And they were ready to make that switch from self to God, from sin to freedom. And uh, pretty soon this little boy comes down and he is just so upset and he's crying and he just comes and, and finally the, the professor leans over and he puts his hand on the boy and he says, son... He said, son, what's wrong? Why are you so upset? And little boy, through his tearful ears, says, well, my name's Buster. <laughs> and I want to get my heart right with God right now. And uh, I'm sure little Buster did that that morning. But you know what? When we think about the nation of Judah and ultimately ourselves, that's actually the response God's looking for. God had given his chosen people a covenant, a binding agreement to live by. But at this point in history, it was extremely clear that it had never produced the kind of repentance, the kind of heart change that God was looking for. It had never produced that tearful, sorrowful response the little buster displayed. And that is why God, through the prophet Jeremiah, proclaims and prophesies about a new covenant, a new way of people being in right relationship with God. We're going to pick it up in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 32. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And exactly what those verses say, the first covenant was chiseled in stone. God had formed the nation of Israel out of two million Hebrew slaves. They were in Egypt and they were suffering. He sent them Moses, their leader, Aaron, the priest, and Miriam, the worship leader, and prophetess. He performed 10 incredible plagues. Each one was designed to change Pharaoh's mind. It was a defiant threat to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. But each of those plagues, you may not know this morning, was also to demonstrate God's superiority or his defeat of each one of the main Egyptian gods. So the Egyptians worshipped Ra, the sun god. And what was one of the plagues? God caused darkness to fall over all the land in the middle of the day, thereby showing that God was in control, not Ra, the sun god. One of the plagues was a swarm of frogs came up out of the river and came up over the land and, and were in the, the Pharaoh's palace and all over the, the buildings and the houses and the crops and the people. And again, it was showing that Hapi, the Egyptian god of the river, she wasn't more powerful than God. If God wanted frogs to come out of the river, out they came. And after Pharaoh finally, after 10 plagues, lets the people go, he changes his mind. He realizes, I'm going to lose my, my 2 million strong slave workforce. And he sets out with his warriors and his chariots to recapture them at the banks of the Red Sea. And God miraculously parts the waters. And they all safely cross over. All the children, women, men, livestock, possessions on carts, and then God judges Pharaoh and his armies and he allows the water to, to crush back in on them and drown them. Now, the point I want to share this morning is that the order of those events is so important. God first saved his people and then he makes a covenant with them. And the heart of that covenant, the heart of that binding agreement is the Ten Commandments. Now, a covenant was an extremely strong agreement between two parties. In the ancient world, it was usually between the nation who conquered and the ones who were conquered. And they made an agreement. And they would say, okay, if we're going to coexist together, this is the rules. This is how it works. This is how you are to live. Typically in movies, you see Moses carrying the Ten Commandments. And on one stone tablet, you see Commandments 1 through 5. And then the next one, you see Commandments 6 through 10. And that's actually wrong. That's, that's not how it would have been because in those days, all of the Ten Commandments would be on each tablet. And the reason was, one copy was for God and one copy was for the people of Israel. And in covenants with other nations, the conquering nation had a copy and those who were conquered had a copy. Now, the law of God contained within the first five books in which the Ten Commandments are the heart, it did a lot for the nation of Israel. It showed them the best way to live. And when you compare their life to the nations around them like the Canaanites, it really stood out. God was calling them to live in moral, good ways. They didn't always do it, but the, the plan was there. And it really set them apart as a nation. They became known around the world as the people of the book, the people of the law. They're the ones who God had given it to. 
Now, some people wonder, okay, so what part of the Old Covenant is still relevant for us today? As Christians, as followers of Jesus who stand on this side of Jesus' amazing work in history, is any of that still relevant for us? Well, it's been pointed out that the ceremonial aspects of the law, that God told the Jewish people not to eat pork, he told them not to eat shellfish. If you go to Israel today, you got to wear a kippah hat on your head if you're going to go to the Wailing Wall and pray. All those ceremonial aspects, Jesus perfectly and completely fulfilled. And so for a Christian today, all of those are fulfilled. They're irrelevant. We don't need to follow them. And then there was the civil law in Israel that covered a whole bunch of civil aspects. And that's why, again, for a Christ follower today, we don't need to get super uptight about where the property boundaries were for our great-great-great-great-grandfather's property. We don't need to get all uptight about that. Jesus perfectly fulfilled it, made it irrelevant. And Jesus also fulfilled the moral law, of which the Ten Commandments are the heart. But there's a sense in which, at least as a guide, those moral parts of the law are still relevant for us today. Why? Because they are actually the reflection of God's divine character. He's perfect in morals, in purity. As Bible scholar Philip Ryken says, it's impossible to imagine a time when God says it's okay to give false testimony, commit adultery, and murder. So the moral law is still good, but it was extremely limited, and the history of God's people proves it. The external obedience to the commandments never penetrated and never changed their hearts. That was the problem. It was a good guide, but it didn't ultimately get inside and change their hearts. That's why the people continually wandered away from God to worship idols and live in evil ways. As it said in Jeremiah 31 that we read, Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And ultimately, it just shows us over and over and over again that true, lasting change in our lives doesn't usually come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. And that's why God initiates a new covenant based on Jesus' life his work on the cross, his teachings. That's why we discovered Jeremiah prophesying 500 years before Jesus came on the scene and fulfilled it. Let's pick it up in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor, say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That is an amazing statement. And in the midst of the book of Jeremiah, 52 chapters, and a huge amount of the 52 chapters are making a case against Judah, against Israel, why God's sending them into exile. 
It's a constant reminder. You sinned. I told you not to. told you not to worship other gods, and you did it. I told you not to abuse the orphans in your midst, and you still did it. I told you not to forget the widow who's struggling, who doesn't have enough to eat, and you still did it. Over and over and over and through Jeremiah, God reminds them of their sins and why he's sending them into exile. And yet here in this beautiful chapter, God makes a statement that at one point, He's going to remember their sins no more. He's going to cleanse them from all of their guilt. Now that is an incredible, game-changing statement for the people of Israel. Now some people have wondered why God didn't simply decide, you know what, my love overwhelms my holiness and my justice. So I'm just going to forgive the sins of all humanity. A lot of people have said that to me. What's the deal with Jesus? Why didn't God just say, I just forgive it all? Well, you know what? The real truth is that if God just decided one day, you know what? I'm just going to flat out forgive everybody's sin. Then that would violate his own person. God would cease to be God. He would cease to be morally perfect. He would cease to be completely holy. Maybe an example of a human judge will help us understand this point this morning. Now, think in your mind of a human judge. This guy's got an important role. He's worked hard to get there. And one day he wakes up and he's having breakfast. And all of a sudden, his daughter in grade 12 runs in. She says, Dad, Dad, the most amazing thing happened. She said, I just got a letter from Harvard. And they have given me a four-year full-ride scholarship. Can you imagine amazing. He's so excited. His daughter has a four-year scholarship to the best university in the United States. He is so excited. Then he's on his way to work and his wife calls and she says, honey, I just heard back from the hotel where we're going to plan our anniversary. And they messed up our booking and they were so apologetic. They've given us a free upgrade to the best room in the entire resort. And on top of that, they gave us a free dinner at their best restaurant. She's so excited. He's so excited. He's thinking this day can't get any better. And then he pulls into the parking lot, and he's just about to get out and go into the law courts and into his office. And the announcer reads out the lottery numbers on the thing. And he grabs his ticket, and he's reading along. And sure enough, he wins 1000 bucks a month for 25 years out of this world. This guy's having the ultimate, the best day ever. Can't get any better. So he goes into work and he opens up the file and he reviews the case before him and it's a bank robbery. And it turns out that uh, this guy was a pretty inept bank robber and he came in and uh, there he is. For some reason he looks like Bonnie and Clyde from the 1950s. Thank you, (laughs) Katrina. But uh, this guy's totally inept. And so one of the employees actually sneaks out their cell phone and records the whole incident. So now we've got video footage of him trying to rob this bank. There is at least 10 eyewitnesses that see this guy with his gun threatening the tellers, getting them to give, give him the money. And then the police were close by and they rush over and they catch the guy red-handed stuffing money into his bag to leave. And he's got his gun out threatening everyone. I mean, this is the ultimate open and shut case. There's no wiggle room. All the evidence is against this guy. 
And so they have the trial, they hear all the evidence, everyone's said their piece, and finally it comes back and the judge has got to read his verdict. And he comes back and he says, you know, I know that all of the evidences overwhelmingly show this man's guilt, but you know what, everybody, I am having the best day ever. It's unreal what's happened to me today. My daughter got a full-ride scholarship to Harvard. My wife and I got a free upgrade for our anniversary, and I just won the lottery. He goes, I am feeling so good, I just can't condemn this guy. You know what, I know he's totally guilty, but you know what, buddy, you're free. Free to go. Well, there would be a huge outrage. Everyone would go nuts. Newspapers would go crazy. Websites, Twitter accounts would just blow up with indignation. This judge cannot do this. And he would, in fact, be in violation of the entire system of law and justice. And you know what? The public should be outraged. And what we cannot tolerate in a human judge, we absolutely cannot tolerate in the holy, morally perfect, totally just God of the universe. So if God just decided one day, I'm just going to forgive everybody, he would be in violation of his own character. So what does God do? He's got a dilemma on his hands. You know what God decided to do? He becomes both the perfect moral judge of sin and the perfect sinless payment for sin. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, as the creeds say, Jesus willingly lays down his life for all the sin of humankind that separates us from God. And if you stop and think about sin for just one minute, all of the sin around the world that us seven billion human beings do it's pretty staggering. Every bully on the playground that picks on and beats on a particular kid at school, forever shaping that kid's view of the world. Every lie that's told that destroys a friendship, every affair that happens that blows apart a marriage. Every murder, every theft that leaves someone devastated, and every drunk driver hitting and killing someone's loved ones. The sins of humanity are overwhelming on just an individual level. And then if you add in the horrendous evil that nations and dictators have done from Idi Amin and his reign of terror in Uganda to Joseph Stalin starving four million people in Ukraine in the early 1930s to Hitler's attempts to wipe out the Jewish people in the Holocaust. The debt of humanity's sin is absolutely overwhelming. And God cannot simply forgive and, the for, and forget the price that had to be paid. But that's what exactly what Jesus did. 1 Corinthians 11.25 records Jesus' statement where he consciously announces he is the fulfillment to Jeremiah's prophecy given 500 years before. 1 Corinthians 11.25 and 26 in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, not written in stone like the first covenant, in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. That moment when the price was paid. First covenant God made with his chosen people was based on on outward obedience. 
As long as they did what God said, as long as they obeyed, they were blessed and accepted. The second covenant is based on Jesus' perfect obedience, Jesus' perfect sacrifice that has the power to transform the human heart so that God's favor is no longer learned, earned through outward obedience, but given to a heart that truly believes. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it beautifully like this. He says, Christians who trust in Christ for their acceptance with God rather than their own moral character, commitment, or performance are, the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously sinful yet accepted by God. And here's his beautiful statement. He says, we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time. You see that promise? For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What an incredible promise that God gave to his people 540 years later that would find its fulfillment in Jesus. There's a Christian writer, his name is Gordon Clinard, and he tells a story of stopping at a truck stop one day. And he goes into the diner, and there's all the truckers and everybody in there. And this waitress comes up to him, and she's kind of got a bit of a, a dour look on her face. And she's like, yeah, what do you want? And, and he says, well, I will start with a cup of coffee. And says, okay, I'll be back. And here's a menu. And, and he notices that she's got a tattoo on her arm that says Charlie. So he decides, you know what? I'd love to talk to this woman. And he, he strikes up a conversation with her. And he says, so, so how's Charlie? And she goes, what? And he goes, well, Charlie, the, the tattoo on your arm. She goes, oh, that. She goes, yeah, that happened a number of years ago. I was high and it was night. And well, you know, I've never seen him since. But then she went on to say, but you know what? I am married now to an amazing guy. His name is Richard. We've been married for 10 years, and he is the love of my life. And then Gordon said, so what does Richard think about Charlie? And she said this beautiful statement. She said, oh, well, from the first time I explained it, he's never mentioned again. I don't think he even sees it anymore. It's a beautiful story. And that is exactly the way that Christ loves the church around the world. Everyone from Nigeria to Argentina to Japan who puts their full trust and faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, God doesn't see our sin anymore. Well, from the basis of the new covenant written not by chiseling in stone, but written in the precious lifeblood of Jesus, we are now free to experience the joy of gospel living. You may be sitting here this morning listening to all this say, Okay, Darren, I see the connection between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I see the point that God just can't overlook sin. It had to be dealt with. But where does Jeremiah specifically connect all of this with the Messiah to come, to Jesus, the descendant of the King David? That is such a good question. Thank you for asking that this morning. Because I really want to tell you the answer to that. Turns out that it's just two chapters later in Jeremiah 33. There's an amazing prophecy of the Messiah, the Savior to come, who turns out to be Jesus, Son of God, second person of the Trinity. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 17. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which, it will be, by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. For it is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. It's an interesting phrase, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And you can see in there that the word Lord is capitalized, L-O-R-D. And every time we read that in our English Bibles, what that means is it's the, the name God gave to himself when Moses said, what's your name? And he said, my name is Yahweh. And so capital L-O-R-D represents Yahweh. And then it says, so it's Yahweh, our righteous Savior. Do you know what the name Jesus means? It means Yahweh to the rescue. Isn't that beautiful? So there's the prediction of Jesus 540 years before he came. And what Jeremiah prophesied was accomplished in Jesus Christ. He is the descendant of David, the righteous branch. And he did do what was just and right, both in his sinless life and in the price that he paid for all of our sin. Jesus did offer salvation to Judah and Jerusalem. Some put their faith in Christ. But ultimately, that promise is yet to be fulfilled when Christ comes back. The new covenant, the work of salvation accomplished by Jesus, wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was also for all the rest of us, the non-Jews as well. And that's why the Apostle Paul can write these amazing words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And the amazing promise of verse 19, which echoes the promise in Jeremiah 31 that we've been reading today, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. Sounds exactly like, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. From Jeremiah 31, Paul continues, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God's whole plan and point with the exile of Judah in Babylon was to wake the people up, to give them a, a taste of the consequences of their own sin, so they would turn back to him and be reconciled. And then one of the most glorious promises in the entire Bible, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the, right, right, the, the righteousness of God. That is the greatest trade in all of history. All of our sin, all of our evil, all of our failings on Jesus. And in turn, we get all of his perfectness, his righteousness, his sinless, restored relationship with God. There's never been a trade like it in all of history. 
That Ocean View Community Church is the good news about Jesus. That is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, God's promises so long ago. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never taken that final step of putting your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The one who gives you direction in your life. The one capable of removing the debt of sin and giving you his perfect righteousness in return. If you've never done that and you want to do that today, I want to talk to you after the service. What are you waiting for? The gospel, the good news about Jesus is what propels everything in the life of the follower of Jesus. It gives us freedom and restoration. We don't have to live in guilt and shame any longer. It gives us purpose. We join Jesus on his mission to reconcile the world to himself. It gives us hope in the midst of a world going haywire with violence and collapsing morals. It gives us humility and compassion. Because we understand how much God has forgiven us, we can't condemn other people. You know what? The gospel fuels everything. It transforms how we work. We want to be people of integrity, compassion, and hard work so that our Monday to Friday is as much worship as when Ray and the band leads us on Sunday morning. The gospel transforms what we think about our environment, about our world. If God's point in Christ is to reconcile all the people and all of this world back to himself, then we shouldn't treat it as disposable. We shouldn't log it, burn it, and pave it. We should look after it. We should care for God's creation. The gospel transforms our pleasures. We finally have someone to thank for the joy that we see in our kids' or our grandkids' faces. We have someone to thank when we taste an incredible meal that sends our taste buds tinkling, tingling, not tinkling, that would be weird. <laughs> we have the ultimate artist to thank when we see the reflections of his creative genius in sunsets, in, pe in peacocks, in hummingbirds, in little babies. The gospel changes and fuels everything. I hope this morning that you've seen that connection between the first half of the Bible and the second. I hope today you've seen how Jesus the Messiah perfectly fulfills Jeremiah 31. And I hope today that you're left with a renewed and a deeper understanding of the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is the engine that runs everything we do as a church. It's what transforms us into people who can faithfully love God, love others, and serve the world. Amen? Grant, come and pray for us.